good morning, good morning. Good morning. Hey, we're having a cookout a little bit later today. Don't forget that. And before that, we have a membership meeting. We're still kind of getting organized here this morning, but we're blessed. And so we're going to be here for a bit. Got a few orders of business to take care of during the membership meeting and, and some uh, burgers to eat and goodies. I saw a wonderful, beautiful cake box come out and get some cake. That's all I want to say about cake box come out. And you know, uh, whenever you see a cake box come out, something good is about to happen. <laughs> Unless, of course, something was in a cake box that wasn't supposed to be there. Anyway, so we've got that going on today. And a couple of interesting things in membership meetings. And uh, God's kind of moving. It's kind of cool. So we're going to pray together. Remember, now, I know, I know we have been blessed and in many ways, untouched, unaffected uh, by a lot of what's going on in the world. But at the same time, on the fringe of our body and our friends and family members and stuff, there are people who have been affected. Um, this last Wednesday was the largest diagnosed count for the coronavirus since the whole thing began. So by no means is this over. You know, it might not be in babies. It's, it's still around. It's not gone. Um, and so there's... There are people who are struggling with it. We pray for them. We pray for our country. And then there are people who are struggling with political and let's call it municipal. So we're talking about things with police and things with soldiers and things like that. Uh, issues. And we'll pray for that too. But we pray most of all that God moves amongst us and lets us do what it is that we came here to do. Which is to praise Him and to reach new heights in Jesus. Let's pray together. God in heaven, I thank you so much for this place, this opportunity to come together. I suppose we should stop and say, you are a holy God. You are an awesome and powerful God. You have given good gifts. You have uh, stacked them up so much so that it's hard to count how blessed we are. We thank you for Rayleigh, for the children that are with us today, for our jobs, for health and strength for this building, for resources to do what we do. We've been so immensely blessed. We believe that's a tribute to your character. And we can't we can't deny that you've been good to us. But what we also have to realize, Lord, is that at times we've not been so good to you. Times when we were doing what we should have been doing, but with the wrong heart. And times when we were doing what we shouldn't have been doing. And times when we weren't doing what we should have been doing. We thank you that there is forgiveness available to your son Jesus. We ask for it today. And we're grateful that the promises of your word and testimony of the Holy Spirit, we know that you give it to us. For that reason, Lord, we come to praise you today. We come to ask you to help us to grow in relationship with you. We can read our Bibles more. Pray more, we can worship more, we can serve more, we can give more. These are all spiritual disciplines, and the list goes on. We can do those things in an attempt to draw closer to you. But we know the greatest effort that could possibly be accomplished in us being closer to you is if you would do it. If you would draw us unto yourself, if you would lift us up so that we can lift you up. So, Lord, as we sing these songs today, as we worship your holy name, as we maybe get a little bit excited up in here. Please remind us of the blessings that we have. Please help us to not forget those who are hurting. People who are struggling, psychologically, emotionally, physically. Some in our midst, some on the streets, some in our city. We pray for police officers and, and soldiers, governors, our president. 
where we don't necessarily agree with everything that goes on, but those people have been put in a place of authority and a place of responsibility, and the authority and responsibility don't always level out. Sometimes they have more responsibility than they have authority to fix things, and sometimes they have more authority than they are responsible. But we know you're God. You know exactly what's going on. You're still on the throne. And so we ask you to bless him and lead it to yourself as you see fit. If we can be used in that process, then use it. But for now, Lord, we commit ourselves to this service, our membership meeting, our, our cookout. We'll commit it all into your hands that you would make it what you want it to be. And we pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. <coughs>
All right, we come to that moment in time. I, I, I warned you two weeks ago, and I'm hoping there's something. I reminded you last week and gave you a one-week reprieve. And I've asked you to come today with a brief story of how you might have served sometime. And it actually is perfectly fitting because uh, not only this, we're kind of celebrating kind of adjunct because it's a month after, but we're sort of celebrating anniversary today. But on top of that, uh, it's the sermon today has a little bit to do with service. And uh, so have you served this week? Have you done something this week maybe that you didn't expect to do or last week? Find a way, I hope you did, go out of your way to do some kind of service, and then tell us what that experience was like. How were you inspired? How was the other person inspired? Something like that? Anything like that? Once? All right. So, working at the live station full-time has been a trip. Um, Some days, I treat it like a job. Some days, I treat it like a ministry. And there is a difference. I can feel a difference, I can see a difference in the people that I'm helping, and when I'm serving someone out of a servant's heart, it makes a difference. And there's been um, a couple times, specifically, like there was one, and I irritated a couple people, my husband being one of them, that I went out of the way to serve them with the refrigerator that we were giving, because we were getting rid of anyway, because we didn't have one, they had kids in the house, and that was an act of service and I was a little bummed when she wasn't overly grateful that we gave it to her but I didn't do it because it was my job I did it as an act of service and you can tell a difference when you're serving someone because you have to or because you're expected to and when you're serving someone because you want to because the right thing to do I've always said one of the worst things that could happen to really, if you really have a service heart and start serving, is to get paid to do it. Once you get paid to do it, then you start thinking of it's about a paycheck, but it's not. It's still about the service. And so, if you do take a job serving people, definitely maintain that service heart. Or you will, it will be hard to keep up steam, that's for sure. That's a good word. Anybody else? Be served? last weekend, last Saturday, uh, as Chris asked for my help doing some reorganizing, cleaning, things like that, rearranging stuff, and that's something I'm gifted with. Anyone that knows Miss Phyllis, new Grandma Judy, that's a um, And so I went over there and I helped, and I'm just doing my thing, and she's like, "You're so amazing at this," and it's a gift. And my it, it was it feels good, even though it's exhausting and it's sweaty and blah, but um, it always feels good to do it. Feels good when you're done. And if God gives you a gift and you don't use it, um, that would be a shame. Um, so I don't always, I don't think, get to use it. But it was a blessing. We had to spend time with her, but we also got to accomplish something. And it felt really good. Amen. And I know she was encouraged. I think Brother Tim was encouraged as well. With that. <laughs> yeah. So yesterday, um, so there has been a situation kind of developing for several weeks through the life station with the with emergency food delivery. We have an apartment complex. Uh, which has, I think, about, it's either 200 or 400 apartments, and it's a high-rise, like uh, eight, eight, nine stories tall. And more and more people have been ordering emergency food from there. So yesterday, Josh and I loaded up the new cargo van, which is smaller than the old cargo van, but runs better. Um, and and we really loaded it up, because the box were kind of big. We filled it all the way to the top. We, we had 26 families that were in this apartment complex, and we took them all over there at one time. 
and we thought, you know, 45 minutes to an hour, we're going to be done. We're going to nail this, and we're call, calling everybody on the van on the way there, come down and get your groceries. They were all coming down. We didn't have to pick them up. We knew there might be one or two we'd have to pick up. And, and it, in the end, it took almost three hours, um, which I think we could have probably delivered them individually to people's apartments in about that same amount of time. It was so, so long. But it was... It was almost three hours, not just because people didn't right away come down, not just because we had to take some up. We have a gentleman who had a stroke. He's in a wheelchair, and he can't carry anything. And so Josh walked, you know, took it up to his apartment and like that to serve him. And then we had a gentleman who had told us previously he'd gotten food a couple of times, but his phone was disconnected. We thought, well, he probably needs food. So Josh went up and knocked on his door and took him the food, and he, of course, was ecstatic to receive it. He was really excited to get it, even though he knew his phone was shut off. And um, so those kind of things made it take longer. But the other thing that was making it take longer was everybody wanted to talk. There were people, we were talking about all kinds of stuff during, we actually had a witnessing experience with a gentleman who, when we started with him, basically the first thing out of his mouth, talking about religion, if you will, was he said he was Islamic. But then after we talked to him, he's like, well, yeah, I go, you know, I go to an Islamic mosque or temple, whatever he called it, and he goes, but I also go over here to this Christian church. And when we walk, work through it, he's, he's basically kind of confused, is what it is. He's kind of confused about the tenets of Christianity. And so between Josh and I, and this probably, in all the years that we've worked together, it may be the only time that Josh and I have ever had a, the two of us together witnessing to somebody at the same time. And so we, he was maybe, he, I think he smelled a little bit of alcohol, but I don't think he was drunk drunk, but he, he, had, been, he had had a beer or two. And we were able to explain to him that the reason that Jesus needed to die on the cross, the reason that God chose for him to do that, was to pay for the sins of people. And while I was talking to him about the tenets of Christianity and asking him the question about, you know, so do the Muslim people you hang, because he was saying um, that Muslim belief and Christian belief was the same. And I said, so do the Muslim people you hang out with, do they believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, the Son of God, and died on the cross for sins? So that's like one of the primary things of Christianity. And they don't, by the way. Muslims do not believe that. They actually believe that God rescued him before the cross, transported Judas's soul into Jesus's body, and it was Judas that died on the cross. Even though that's contrary to Scripture completely, but that's that's the, the fundamental teaching of, of Islam, the best I understand it. And if I'm wrong, I'm not Islamic, so it's okay. <laughs> but that's pretty much right. So anyway, we kind of asked him that, and he goes, "Oh no!" And I do believe that. He said, "And I do believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and I do believe that He died on the cross for our sins." Um, but then I believe after that, God rescued him up to heaven. And I said, well, yeah, that's what Scripture actually said. And so um, it was a really cool experience that was wrapped up in three hours of sitting in the heat, trying to keep the butter from melting, passing out grocery boxes to people who, not everybody came at one time, it was like they came in waves, three or four waves. But if we hadn't done that, we would, we would not have had the opportunity to witness together. We would not have the opportunity to see that guy kind of professing Christ. He didn't get saved, per se. He either already was, he was confused about it, or he believes the tenets, but he's not necessarily fully on board, if you take my, if you understand what I mean. So, but, but the point is, we wouldn't have got a chance to do that. So sometimes, you, this is what comes out of that. Sometimes you start out to do one thing, and you think, I'm going to serve. I'm going to do this. They need this. They want this. Whatever. I'm going to serve. And it actually develops into a completely different thing than what you thought it was. And that's what happened to us. We started out giving, we thought we're just going to go there and each person's going to come, we're going to give them the box, and it's all going to be, you know, that's, and we might talk to some people along the way, but we wound up with so many opportunities to serve in that few hours. Everything from the guy who was in the wheelchair couldn't come get his food, that we, well, the guy with disconnected phone couldn't, didn't, couldn't even order his food, but needed it desperately. Um, and then we had 
four, was it four or five that came by that desperately needed food, and we were able to sign them up right then while we were there, and we had, and Josh kind of made a policy that we're going to bring extra, and so we brought extra, and we were able to give it to them right away. And so it really developed into being a lot more now. It can't, it can't be that way every Saturday. That's not going to be able to happen because it's just too much. Uh, it's not really good with the food either because some of the food we have is fresh stuff, and it can't sit in the van. So we were wrestling with that the whole time. But sometimes you start out to serve one way, you think it's going to be something, and it turns into something completely different. Now, the, the struggle is, was I started to get upset. I started to think, oh, man, it's taking forever, whatever. And God reminded me in the midst of it, don't do that. If you really came here to serve, then you'll serve however I want you to serve. If it's something different than what you thought or whatever. And so that was really encouraging to me. Anybody else got one? Tony Tate. Got a video. The video comment. Get ready. Someone can look at his hands and do Like, you know, 
colors like a stoplight. I'm gonna you left it cause I know you're not right. If I was done, you should learn from St. Nick and Jack twice. Character of Christ that we need. 
it, we're still the same person. I'm still goofy. I still have a sense of humor. God's not taking it from me. He's changed my humor around. He's changed my goofiness. He's riding, the, I love it, the funniest thing is that part, he's riding a bike with the dolphins, stuffed animal with dolphins. <laughs> Can you imagine just trying to say, I'm a Christian. Like, okay. But the thing is, he is who he is. And I'm just saying, as Christ followers, you know, we humble ourselves before God, but we are who we are every day. We don't have to pretend that we're better or greater. Let's be who we are, but let's be it in Christ. And that's, that's all i got to say. Amen. Uh, brother, you got just a little fun fact that I found out, because I've listened to this song since it came out, and he's got other really good music, really, really good music. And I found out when he actually made that video, he was only 17. So for the young ones, if you put your mind to it, it don't matter what age you are. If you put your mind to it, you can accomplish things. He was 17 when he made that video. So if you're, if you want to do something, the only way to get it done is you have to put the work in, and you have to do it. You can't, you can't give up. You can't get halfway through something and go, okay, well this is too hard. I'm not doing it no more, because you'll never accomplish anything if that's the way you think. So let's take a few quick words as we transition into the rest of our worship time. Oh, Father, thank you so much for being here today and to teaching us so far. Thank you for keeping our people here. Hopefully, we will get safe and healthy. Continue to turn our lives forward. Forgive us for the failure.
I thought in my head when I was thinking of the song coming up here. It's called I Want to Be Like You. And uh, with all the conversations that have been going on, I was, I was thinking um, there's always voices out there saying, Be like me, think like me. And recently, there's a lot of voices we almost can't avoid anymore saying, Be like us and you're the enemy. Um, and all that. So it's like, um, who are we supposed to be? I, you need to think about who you are and what you want to be. Um, do you want to be part of this group or that group? Um, do you want to think like this or that? And if you're a child of God, you're His, you're part of His kingdom, and you need to think His way and be His way. And um, if that puts you in this group or that classification or that, whatever, but that's not relevant. What's relevant is are we children of God? And this song kind of talks to that. So when you, as you sing it, think about that. Who are we supposed to be? Amen. When I'm down, you are up for me.
As I was preparing this message, a particular image came into my head that I have experienced a number of times right across the hallway over there in the multi-purpose room. 
Uh, we would play uh, dodgeball and a variety of different types of dodgeball. One of the types that we would play was called medic. And it basically means that if you get hit, you have to go down on the floor or sit or freeze or whatever rules you're playing at that time. And then you can't move again or participate in the game until the medic would come and touch you and bring you back. Okay, so back into the game or so on. Inevitably, someone would get up close to the line, the midline in the room, and they would get hit. And the medic would have to go all the way up there and touch them. It's not safe. Because if the medic gets hit and is out of the game, then basically it's just a matter of time before you lose the game. And um, after watching them play for a while, just a pretty short while, actually maybe half the time that I remember we played this game, they would always develop a strategy where someone would walk in front of the medic. So as the medic was getting up there to try to free that person who was up on the line, they would have two or three people would stand right in front of the medic and kind of form a wall. And they would literally just throw themselves in the way of any ball that came so that the medic would not get hit. And then, of course, they would be frozen, and then the medic would just immediately unfreeze them. So the medic was right behind them, and the people who were blocking the medic so he wouldn't get hit would be forming a wall in front of him. And usually it was the biggest kids in the room because it's hard to form a wall when you're skinny or too mobile. And so they would, they would get in front of the medic, and then they would come forward, and, and the medic would then reach around them and touch the person who had been hurt and, or been hit by a dodgeball and out of the game, and then they would all go back. Well, inevitably, the person who was on the ground, who was outside the wall, would get hit. So then eventually, they would, the way they would do it, they'd bring the wall up, blocking the medic, and then when they'd get up there, the wall would move in front of the person who was wounded or person who had been hit and was down. The medic would then touch, keep touching the members of the wall and also the person who was on the ground who would come up and form part of the wall. And then the whole wall and the person who had previously been hit would back up, and he, the medic would just keep touching them, and every time they would get hit, he'd touch them, and they would back up and they would, they would have rescued that person. Now, if somebody on the other side got a lucky shot, got a ball through and hit the medic, then you know, it was all bets are off at that point because the medic was out. I was thinking about that, um, and basically what, what was happening, there's two sides to the issue. The people who are throwing the balls, they see the people blocking the medic as in their way to winning the fight. So they're throwing the ball, and they're going... They, they, um, they're throwing at the medic, trying to get the medic out, and the wall is in their way of hitting the medic, and the medic is in their way of winning the game. So that means the wall is effectively in their way of winning the game because until the medic is gone, they really can't win. That's the people throwing the ball, right? The people on the other side, the wall, they see the medic as their lifeline. They're, every time they get hit, they're going to get tapped. And they trust him that every time they're hit, he's still going to be there, and he's going to get tapped. And they're literally getting hit by dodgeballs, pelted sometimes in the face, things like that knowing that the medic is going to revive them. The person that's on the ground sees the medic as a possible salvation. They are currently out of the game. They see the medic as a possible salvation. And the wall is protecting the medic, so the wall is facilitating their being saved. And then when the wall comes up and covers them, they are being saved in part by the wall that's blocking them from getting hit again. But they're really not getting saved by the wall until after the medic unfreezes them, and then now... The, they become part of the wall that protects the medic, that continually unfreezes them, and they go back. So it's an interesting kind of figurative metaphor kind of thing for uh, salvation when you think about what's going on there. And I'd like you to kind of bear that image in your mind as we read the text for today. And uh, we're going to go to uh, Matthew chapter 20. Woo! Is there anybody there? Say amen. Amen. This is God's word. Um, 
It is a dark time in the history of mankind. Because Jesus, in verse 17, which is the first verse we're going to read, explains to His disciples that, they, that He will be crucified, that He will be destroyed, physically speaking, uh, when they go to Jerusalem. And it's a shame that ever was necessary. Verse 17, chapter 20, begins like this. As Jesus was about to go to Jerusalem, He took the twelve disciples aside by themselves, and on the way He said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn Him to death. And they will hand Him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify Him. And all, that, By the way, that's all really bad stuff. Though. Mocking is bad enough, especially since it's been done publicly. Scourging, that's really bad. That's being whipped within an inch of your life. And then crucify Him, that's literally being killed on a cross. It's all really bad stuff. And He says they will do that on the third day. And on the third day, I'm sorry, he will be raised up. So that brings us through verse 19. An episode, an encounter just happened that we cannot miss in order to understand what we're studying today. So I'm going to ask you, non-rhetorical questions, help me process this. Where did this conversation take place? We just read it, verses 17 through 19. Where did the conversation take place? In the first verse. On the way to Jerusalem, right? Who was present at the conversation when it took place. Jesus, he's the speaker. And who else? The 12 disciples, right? It says he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves. So actually, it's Jesus and the 12 disciples. That's all that's in the conversation. He, there's a crowd following, right? But he took them aside. So do you see favoritism? Do you see preference? Do you see Jesus saying, you need to know this, you need to understand this because you have a job to do, but not everybody needs to hear this teaching right now. See what I'm saying? It says, he took them aside and explained to them this fact. Okay? So that's through verse 19. And he he does explain to them that the bad things he's going to go through, but then he does say that on the third day he would be raised up. Verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, so this is James and John, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. So Jesus is standing there, midst of whatever he's doing, could be on the side of the road still, whatever, and she comes and she bows down, she gives him reverence, and she wants to make a request of Jesus. And it's kind of like she probably says, can I make a request of you? Because then he says to her, verse 21, what do you wish? What is your request? And she said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. Okay, so she's looking for preferential treatment. She wants her two sons to be elevated to a certain position, literally on his right and his left in the kingdom of God. I don't think it's a bad thing. I just don't think she understands what she's asking for. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? Now, that question, are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink, notice where the question is directed. She asks him for James and John to sit on his right and left when he enters the kingdom of God. Jesus directs his question, are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink, to James and John? Because they said to him, we are able. So we know that he directed his question, or at least they interpreted it as he was directing his question to them. So this is another little private powwow initiated by their mother, and 
He directs his question to them. They say, we are able. He said to them, my cup you shall drink. And basically, you can kind of hear, without getting off on that tangent, you kind of hear him saying, yeah, you're going to end the same way I'm going to end. You are going to experience the wrath of God in a similar fashion to the way I will do it. But to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Now, there could be some sort of figurative language here where he's talking about his crucifixion, right? And we know that two thieves were crucified. So when he's coming into his kingdom, which is what's happening on the cross, essentially, he could be referring to the two thieves who are going to be crucified next to him, and some people take it to that. Or he could be referring to still later when his, his final kingdom comes. So we're not, we're not going to mince words or try to figure that out, but he says that the, for those who will be on his right and on his left, God has already determined who that's going to be. Verse 24. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. So we know that they were not out of reach of the conversation, but the conversation was taking place in that little group. So again, I want you to see, when she came to ask the question of Jesus, clearly there's preferential treatment. She wants her sons to be elevated to a certain position in the kingdom of God, so she comes to the one who can do that. And she does not do this in a way that is hidden from all sight. Follow? She doesn't literally find Jesus when it's only Jesus. Somehow or other, the story gets out to the other ten. Either they hear it from a distance right there, or later they hear it. But either way, it becomes obvious that she was seeking preferential treatment for her two sons. Because the ten, the other ten disciples, which would include Judas, mind you, were indignant. They were upset with the two brothers. Notice they don't get mad at Jesus. Jesus didn't grant their request. They don't get mad at their mother, the two brothers' mother, who made the actual request, but they see that the attempt was for James and John to get preferential treatment. That's really what was going on there. Either they succumbed to their mother's wishes or they encouraged her to make the request. Either way, they see what was going on there, and now they're upset because they're trying at the two because the two were trying to get preferential treatment. 25. Jesus called them to himself, the disciples, to himself, and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. So now this is referring to governors, police, soldiers, people with authority in society. They lord that, aside, that, that authority over others in the same society. And their great men, those who have been elevated by deeds, elevated by popularity, elevated by um, opinion, whatever, their great men exercise authority over them. He says, it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. So Jesus sets a standard right here for the kingdom of God. This is how someone will receive elevated position in the kingdom of God. You say, well, that's not fair. Everyone should be equal. Everyone is unique and equal. Okay, so no one is any better than anyone else. Everyone needs salvation and they, they need it because of their personal sins and choices and so on. But the bottom line is Jesus says that there is a way to be elevated in the kingdom of God. He said, and I'll, I'll reread it, is this not, not this way amongst you? But whoever wishes to become great among you, great, elevated, have significant position, etc., shall be your servant. Not, okay, I've got popular opinion, and so I'm gonna go, I now can lord it over people, tell them what to do. Not because I have managed to get, you know, I've got a million 
followers on some social media application, so now I can make people think what I want them to think. But whoever would be great amongst you will do so by being your servant. Verse 27. And whoever wishes to be first amongst you shall be your slave. So this is called parallelism, and basically he's just stepping it up. So he's saying, if you want to be great, you got to serve. And the greatest of being great, right, would be to be first. And if you want to be first, you got to be slave, right? And, it, and some would argue that that is a reference to himself. Who has the right to be first in the kingdom of God? Well, it could be Jesus only has that right because he has been our slave. He has done what no one else could do. He served in a capacity that no one else could serve, even going to death on a cross. But they surely would have taken that as a model or an example. So say, even saying outside Jesus, even if it's not Jesus we're talking about, the first should be the servingest, should be the slave. A slave serves with no rights. A slave serves when requested, even what they're asked to do when they don't want to. When there is no logical reason to. When it takes away what you wanted to do. When it costs you more than you can afford, etc. A slave has no rights in the equation. So if you want to be first in the kingdom of God, Jesus says, divorce yourself of your preferences and your rights and serve. Verse 27. And whoever wishes to be first amongst you shall be your slave. Verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus says, I did not come to be served. I didn't come here to teach you how to follow me, to teach you how to do what I want you to do. I didn't come here for that purpose. I came to serve. He says, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So you can, if you want, take that as two separate things. Jesus came to serve. He healed people along the way and so on, blah, 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 blah. He taught and things like that. Those were all services that he did. Or you can realize that the supreme epitome, perfect example of Jesus' service is that he gave his life a ransom for many as a slave. He gave up his rights. He could have not gone to the cross. He could have called angels to save him on the cross. He could have called angels to minister on the cross so they didn't suffer, so they didn't feel pain, so they didn't get hungry, so they didn't thirst. He didn't do any of that. He gave up all of his rights, Philippians 2, in even unto death, death on a cross. Jesus set the model of service. It goes farther, I'm here to tell you right now, it goes farther than any of us have ever done. Because it will literally take an entire lifetime right up to and including your death to model this type of service. You have to go that far. You have to stay the course to the end and die in Jesus in order to model this. And thereby you could reach possibly first place, if you will, in the kingdom of God. All right, so there's a few things in this text that we need to see and a couple of texts that we are going to use to qualify it before we're through. And here we go. The first thing, not to be missed, preferential treatment, favoring one person over another, is real. It flat out is real. And by itself alone, divorced from other behaviors, is not sin. You and I both know Jesus never sinned while he was alive. He died a death 
sinless and undeserving as death. And yet, he clearly favored the disciples, favored those particular children of God over others who were following him. He clearly gave them preferential treatment and taught them something that he did not teach the masses or the crowd. Not only here, but here it's clearly an ex- is, is a clear example of this. Jesus favored the disciples over others who had made professions of faith. He chose them. In choosing is favoring. Call it what you want. Jesus says... Uh, or, I'm sorry, uh, God is, is quoting, uh, talking in, in the book of Malachi, Malachi, for example, they're asking how he favored them, and he said, Isaac I loved, or said, Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. God favored his people. God has always favored his people, and there is nothing unjust or unrighteous about favoring someone. Now, it can be done in a way that is unjust and unrighteous. If Jesus had taught his disciples the gospel and had only taught his disciples the gospel, the truth about himself, and did not teach others ever the truth about himself, then he would be leading them in a dangerous place, right? If Jesus had not sent his disciples then to teach that truth about him to everyone else, he would be leading those people in a dangerous place. And that would be hurtful. It would be... It might not be sinful, but it would certainly be irresponsible in a way, right? And so, preferential treatment by itself is not sin, but sometimes people, out of that preferential treatment, they miss doing the thing that they're really supposed to do. Also, preferential treatment is nothing special. In Matthew 5, which is also part of the Sermon on the Mount, in beginning of verse 43, Jesus says this, he says, You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. First of all, God didn't say that, right? That is a Jewish law or rule, essentially, that they had added. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. See, God gives what's called prevenient grace, grace that existed before we lived. That's what prevenient means. It goes back way before. Before the grace that saves was the grace that could save everybody. God gives that to literally everybody. All creation testifies, talks about Jesus, talks about God's plan, etc. People could theoretically turn to God and did before Jesus came, turn to God and say, okay, God, I want to be saved. I want to live however you want me to live. I'm willing to take whatever steps you will have me to take, and I'm willing to accept whatever plan you make in order to save me. How do you think Abraham got saved? Abraham never met Jesus. He got saved by saying to God, God, I trust you. I have faith in you. Whatever way you decide to make, I'm your man. How do you think Enoch got saved? Not only did he trust in whatever way God would make, but on top of that, he did it so much so that one day him and God were out walking and God said, we're not going back to your house, we're going back to mine. And Enoch Enoch just left the earth, the Bible says, and never died. He literally was taken off the earth and never physically died. And Elijah was carried away by by a chariot or whatever you believe that imagery exactly was. But the point is, There are people, before Jesus ever came, who recognize this prevenient grace of God. They realize that God would favor folks if they would just favor him back and say, okay, God, whatever you want to do. Jesus said, I say, love your 
enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So he's saying, while you're alive on earth, because you are a favored one of God, you should not favor one other, somebody else over somebody else, not even your enemies. You don't even favor your friends over your enemies in that sense. Now, in some physical way, it's still going to happen because you eat lunch with your friends and you don't eat lunch with your enemies most of the time. So there's going to be some of that still going on. But Jesus says, pray for them. Seek their best. Just like God causes his son to rise in the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, when we know somebody else is wrong, does not give us a reason to dislike them. Does not give us a reason to badmouth them or to feel angry about what they are doing or them. I mean, now, sin is still wrong. It's still unrighteous. We still called it what it was, right? God still sends his rain on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. He doesn't make the unrighteous righteous. See? So there's, it's still wrong. The wrongs are still wrong, but you can still favor by prayer and by loving those who are against you. And then he goes on to clarify it this way, and this is, makes it really clear in 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? And as you love your family, you love your brothers and sisters, you love your parents, your parents, as parents, you love your children, you love your wife. And you love them when they love you, what reward do you have? Well, what's implied in that question? That if you love those who don't love you, that you have some kind of reward. That there is a reward in heaven, in the kingdom of God, by God, for loving those who don't love you. So when somebody hurts you, somebody says what you don't like, instead of saying back, you're a stupid idiot, or instead of saying back, I'm not going to hear from you, I don't want to hear nothing, just, just love them. And maybe you say, I love you, to somebody that's hurting you, instead of saying, what you might say in your flesh, say, I love you. And they were like, why would you say that? What do you mean, I love you? I, I'm, I'm treating you this way. And, and you say, or they might get mad at you. People do that. People get mad when you love them, when they don't feel loving, when they don't feel like they should be loved. They get mad. But God says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? See, they're not even going to enter the kingdom of God because they've not accepted Jesus Christ and they're condemned already by what they've done with the Son of God and even they know to love their family. Or even they know to love the people that are like us. Even they know to love the people that, are not, that don't differ politically or don't differ in their doctrine or don't differ in the way they behave. Even they know to love their family. But we're commanded to love everybody, to love even our enemies. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, in other words, those who are connected to you, that you understand, whatever, if the only time you say hi, if you, the only time you shake hands, and I know we're kind of keeping some of the shaking hands down to a minimum right now because of um, social distancing and so on, but if, if you really only are outreaching and pulling people towards you, not physically speaking, but in relationship, you're really only pulling people towards you who are only in your circle, what more are you doing than anybody else? How has God transformed your heart if the primary, if all the primary people you talk to are the people that you already, so you got some guy that you work with, you don't like him, you don't talk to him. You got somebody that's a cousin or a family member that you don't relate well to, the, he likes the opposite football team and he makes a jokes about your football team or says nasty things all the time and you don't really pull him in you know somebody said something really mean or hurtful to you a few years back and and so now you always keep a distance from them how is that any different from what the world does jesus says kingdom values are different right we have now a treasure that no one can take from us 
No, no matter what you do, if you approach somebody who is obviously violent and try to talk them down and they kill you, they cannot take from you that which you have been blessed with. Is it smart to do that in every case? No, you need to be smart. You send us out like sheep amongst wolves. I get that. There, you have to be smart about how you do it. But if you only love those who love you back or love you already, then are you really doing anything different from what the world is doing? Now, I understand their love may be damaged, their love may be broken, but I'm not the one who said this. Jesus did. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than anyone else or than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And they're not God's people. They're not favored by God. 48, therefore you are to be perfect. And we'll come back to that word in a second. As your heavenly father is perfect. Now we understand that he's not talking about perfection in the traditional sense of like you don't make any mistakes, you get it right all the time, right? That's not what he's talking about. This word here in the Greek literally means complete. So let's backtrack it for a second. If this is an equation, let's backtrack it. If the end destination is completeness, backtrack it. What is lacking from people's completeness? As Christians, what is he encouraging us to that we are lacking not being complete? If we're being, now he's saying, no, but you be complete as your father is complete. He's whole, it's done, settled. You be like that. He's talking about loving others as we love ourselves. He's talking about serving people who, let's be very, very, very simple about it. Serving people who do not deserve to be served. When Jesus died on the cross, how many people in the world at that point in time do you think were saved? How many people in Africa? How many people in, in Italy or whatever it was called then? He was dying for people who do not deserve to be saved. They don't. The only reason they deserve to be saved is because that's what God wants. Because God loves us and he wants to draw us to himself. Because God made us and originally an unflawed creation and then, and then flawed. And God wanted to fix the flaw, but to fix the flaw, to take away free will, can't do that, won't do that, refuses to do that, maybe because that would make him something less than complete. And he won't be less than complete. And so instead, he says, I'm going to do this. I am going to sacrifice essentially myself, my own son, to pay for this. I will become a slave to my creation do what I have to do for people who don't deserve it. That's what Jesus is saying would make us complete. And we wonder why it says that the martyrs come into the kingdom of God first. This is literally what it would take for you to know that you are whole in Christ. You have to be able to, in some circumstance... Sacrifice all that you are, give up your preferences, give up your desires, give up your safety, give up your money, give up your time. By the way, all of those things I just listed, they didn't belong to you before you were born and they don't really belong to you now. They belong to God. I, have, I was watching a show called Somewhere in Between and I, I can't really re recommend it yet because I'm in the, like, the first episode on Netflix. And it's about a woman who had a vision that her daughter had died. And in the show, the they say fates cannot really be changed. And so she decides she's going to save her daughter by getting on an airplane and flying, taking her daughter to Hawaii for two weeks because then if she's not in town, she won't be murdered by this mass murderer who's murdering people in her city, which is the premonition that she had. And so she gets on the plane, and then while she falls asleep, the waitress or the stewardess gives some 
stuff that had nuts in it or something that she's terribly allergic to, to her daughter. She has an allergic attack, and they have to fly back to their city. They just got taken off, and she thought everything was safe. Back to their city, and then the clothes that she saw in the premonition, she threw away in the garbage can, and somebody found them and brought them back to her husband and said, here's those clothes. So now the clothes are back in the closet, the kid's back in the house, and they're in the city where her daughter might die. And basically, it's interesting how you, you're going to eventually have to face God and answer for what you did in this life. You can try to twist it. You can make the story different. You can think differently. You can hope to live a really long time. You can try to stay out of trouble. You can try to be the best person you can do. You can try to balance the scales as much as you can. But what Jesus actually says is, when you stand before God, you're going to be asked, did you serve? Were you a slave? That will not save you. Serving or being a slave, that's not going to save you. That's not what saves you. Saving you is when you trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And then Jesus favors you with grace. And then calls on you to serve like he served. To be a slave like he was a slave. Remember, though, that Jesus explained certain things. He broke down the parable of the four soils. You know what Jesus said? After he, does anybody remember what he said after he explained the parable of the four soils to the disciples? Or actually before, just as he was about to? He said, if you can't understand this parable, how will you understand any of the parables? But to whom did Jesus explain that parable to make sure they understood it? Only the disciples. That means anybody else that was in the crowd, if they didn't understand the parable of the four soils, according to what Jesus said, they probably would not understand any of the other parables. But Jesus only explained that parable in detail to his 12 disciples, the closest in his number. Jesus favors followers of Jesus, believers, trusters, Servants and slaves. Preferential treatment makes you know better than the world. They do that. We all do that. That's the irony. It'll never stop. It's literally the human condition. But we are called to do something more than that. To do something more than that. To love beyond those lines. To serve beyond those lines. To sacrifice beyond those lines. To even be a slave as necessary Notice, that will not save you, but according to Jesus, it affects your position in the kingdom of God. Point number two. We see it in the first story, really, but it's prevalent throughout all of it and really all the Gospels. How you carry yourself, the way you carry things out, what you attempt to to achieve and how you attempt to achieve it will affect how others relate to you. James and John wanted to be elevated in the kingdom of God. Is there something wrong with that, by the way? Is there something wrong with wanting to be Jesus' right-hand man? Now, if you're prideful and arrogant and think that you deserve it when nobody else does, now that's, that's something wrong there, but it's the pride and the arrogance that are wrong, right? If you think you're better than everybody else because you deserve to sit at his right hand and nobody else does, then that would be prideful and arrogant. But actually, you know what they did was they went to the man who could put the, they thought could put them on his right hand and left hand, and they asked to be put on it. So in the Psalms, when, they, when, the, when the psalmist writes in precatory prayers, and he prays that God would dash the heads of the babies, of, of the enemies of God's people on the rocks. You know, that's there, right? In multiple places. The psalmist in, in Psalms, we don't like to read them because they're kind of caustic, but 
In the Psalms, we hear the psalmist praying that God break the heads of their babies open on the rocks at the bottom of the cliff. They pray that to God. And you're telling me that the psalmist and God's inspired. So are we supposed to look at that and automatically go, oh, no, 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 that's just sin. The psalmist was just praying sin. We shouldn't pray that psalm. We shouldn't feel that psalm. We shouldn't feel that way. We shouldn't think that that was right because that, the psalmist was just praying sin, right? What makes the prayer of the psalmist okay and right in that case is that they are praying to God. They're not going out to bust the baby's heads on the rocks. They are saying to God, God, break the heads of the babies on the rocks. And if God says no, and they say, okay, Lord, but your will be done, then the psalm is okay. You see? James and John went to Jesus, and it was their mother technically asking, but we understand they were really wanting it. They were asking for those positions of authority in the kingdom of God from the one who theoretically could give it to them. They went to Jesus, and if Jesus said no, were they going to go, oh, you suck as a king and I don't want you anymore? No. There really is nothing wrong with them asking Jesus for an elevated position in the kingdom of God. In fact, at the Lord's Supper... These two men and all of the other men who were there would profess that they would even die with and for Jesus. They, all of them, including Jesus, by the way, would say, Lord, we'll die for you. This was nothing but a, a declaration of their faith and asking that Jesus to elevate them in the kingdom of God. Knowing what did Jesus just said. He literally just told them that he was going to be whipped and scourged and crucified but then would rise again on the third day. And they asked him, essentially, to go with him to the bitter end. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be elevated in the kingdom of God. Absolutely nothing wrong with wanting to be elevated in life. This is the arena that we have. You should be the best that you possibly can be. If you're a mathematician, be the best mathematician. If you're a mechanic, be the best possible mechanic. The greatest of everything should exist in the kingdom of God because the people in the kingdom of God should want to be the greatest of everyone. Not for avarice, not for pride, not to rule over somebody else with authority. He says, we don't do that here. But in order to serve the greatest mechanic in the face of the earth that can do an engine job in 45 minutes, if that's even possible, I don't think it is, but could do something like that, could serve a lot more people. They could literally walk down the street and every broken car they saw, they could say, look, I am the greatest mechanic on the face of the earth and I am here to fix your car for free and I'll pay for the parts. And they could do that because while they were on the job working, working what do they call straight time or whatever, they could work about 10 hours, get paid about 150 and spend the other 30 out there finding people to fix their cars. We want to be great, not just for the purpose of being great. We want to be elevated, not just for the purpose of being elevated. We want to do that in order to serve. And the greatest amongst us shall be our servant. Not actually, right? The greater amongst us will be our servant. But the greatest amongst us will be our slave. You have preferences. What you think is right. What you think you want. You prefer these things over these things. And there is nothing wrong with that. At all. You prefer these people over these people. There's nothing wrong with that. Biblically, Jesus said, even everybody in the world does that. Here's where it goes wrong. It goes wrong when you forget that in the kingdom of God, those people that you prefer, and it's easy to serve them because they're going to serve you back because they love you, you love them, they love you, and it's all good. Ooh, we're all good. It's all friendly feelings, right? 
They don't deserve your love and your service any more than these people over here. And so, by the way, which ones do deserve it? The people that you love deserve your service, right? Wrong. Nobody really technically deserves it. Just the same as we didn't deserve Jesus serving us. Jesus died for everybody, even those that don't deserve it. So who do we serve? We serve those that don't deserve it. So if you stop waiting around to find some people who deserve your service or who will value it or who will pay for it and instead start thinking a mindset and carry yourself in a way where you're looking for service. There was nothing wrong for them asking, but the way they asked, you know, it's on, it's great on the nerves of the others. The way they asked, the way they carried themselves, that, that hurt. Those people were hurt and they thought, indignantly toward those two disciples because of the way they had handled it, having their mom come and ask Jesus. You want to be elevated? Work your butt off like the rest of us. You want to be elevated? Listen to everything Jesus does and browbeat, try to figure out what everything means. Let's do the work of the kingdom of God to be elevated in the kingdom of God. Not go have your mother ask Jesus for you so he can be promoted. They sought a special position, Jesus' favor, even above others whom Jesus favored, and they took steps to gain that favor. The remaining ten were offended by the steps that they took. Jockeying for positions in the kingdom of God will offend. Jockeying for position anywhere will offend. When you try to do the certain thing that will get you what you want, and, and you know somebody else is going to get it. I remember uh, when Alicia was in high school, we talked about how inclusion is also exclusion. And she would talk about, so-and-so is my best friend. I just, want, I just want to be with my best friend. I don't want to be with all those other friends. I just want to be with my best friend. I said, you don't understand. When you're doing that and you're including one person, you're excluding another person automatically. And you're degrading them. You're making them feel small. You can't do that. Inclusion is also exclusion. Now, inclusion is good. Inclusion is like we, we want to love on somebody. Wanna, I want to spend time with them. I want to say something positive. But when you do that with one and you don't do it with another, then that person is excluded. And that's what they did. They excluded people. And when they excluded them, they offended them. And Jesus said, you can't do that. You should be the includer. One of our core values at New Heights Fellowship is involvement. You should be seeking a way to involve everybody in whatever it is that you know. The gospel, service, love. You know where to get food, make sure they got food. If you know how to get across town, you make sure they can get across town. You know how to make a dollar, show them how to make a dollar. You get the dollar, share your dollar. You should be including everybody because that is service. That is exactly what he was saying. In fact, by the way, what we just read, Matthew 5... There is no reward in the other way. So you could literally give, if you right now said, well, my next paycheck is going to be X thousand dollars or X hundred dollars or whatever. And if you went to your friends and your family, you took that entire paycheck and gave it all to your friends and family. You're like, I, I don't need it this month. I'm just going to give it to everybody. All my friends and family get a hundred bucks or whatever, 10 bucks or whatever it divides down to be. What Jesus said was, there is no reward for that. The reward would be if you included people in that number that don't deserve to be there in whatever percentage, not your friends, not your family, not your church, not your ministry, not inside, but outside, and you draw them in that way by sharing every resource that God has given with you, you think it's not offensive? 
to include somebody while somebody over here is excluded? Shouldn't they be offended? They have a right to be offended. Now, I know these verses apply to them too. So the truth is, now you are the one, because you're including somebody and excluding somebody else, you are the one who does not deserve to be served. That's part of the problem we have in the world today is everybody thinks that they deserve to be served. We all would just realize we don't technically deserve to be served, that it is grace, it is a gift, it is love, it is kindness, it is gentleness, it is all of those things when we are served. If we would think of it that way, if you are ever served, then that person is doing it, unless they're just doing it out of selfish motives, they're, they're, they're doing it to somebody that doesn't deserve it. If you get that through your head, then you can realize that the language that we relate to other people should be serving, should be loving. That's what we're supposed to do. Stop talking and start doing. Stop trying to press other people to care about your problem and care about your problem. How we carry ourselves affects others and how they will relate to you. And this is where the rubber meets the road. If you are bristly, nasty, mean, caustic in some way, then when others try to serve you, which they need to do to be elevated in the kingdom of God, it will be harder. So your issues are placing a burden, a stumbling block in front of them because you are making it harder for them to serve you. Somebody serves you and you say, oh, thanks for that, but I, uh, I really don't need it. Or, well, thanks for that, but you know, could it be blue next time? Or, oh, gosh, did you use artificial sweetener in this? You know, when you come up with some reason why the service somebody has given you is not sufficient, you put a stumbling block in front of them to serve you, and they need to serve you in order to elevate their position in life, in order to elevate their position under God, in order to elevate their position in the kingdom of God. They need to do that, even become a slave. Now, when you say something like that, well, shoot, did you use all artificial sweetener in that? And you make a big deal, you kind of push back on them serving you, or you make a big deal out of it by some other use of words or whatever, and you don't just go, oh, thank God, God, I praise you for the service that I have received, and, and then turn around. Somebody gives you something you don't want, you find somebody that wants it. You don't throw it in the garbage. When you are served, that should multiply, your strength should multiply a hundredfold and you serve others even more. You say, well, I don't get served. First of all, that just simply isn't true. It cannot be true because you're sitting here while I'm preaching, which took me some effort to prepare for. You're sitting here while God's word is being delivered to you and martyrs in the millions, or at least in the tens of thousands minimum, have died to secure this word over the last several thousand years. You've been served by people you'll never meet. People planted this church. People worked in this building. People worked on this building. Does anybody here know Tim, Tim Toth? Just a few of us. And your room might have been prepared or painted or fixed or brought around. Did anybody know that Chris Gribble and your dad, right, took the heater vents out and, and painted them when they needed to be painted? They think, well, Chris has never done anything for me. That's just not true. So every time you think somebody hasn't served you, you need to stop and go, first of all, I don't deserve it. Secondly, that surely isn't true. And third, why am I thinking about that instead of serving like I'm supposed to be in? I'm stopping my own self from being elevated in the kingdom of God because I'm worried about what somebody else is doing instead of busy about serving and even, as Jesus put it so clearly, becoming a slave, giving up my preferences. Now, I do know that God will favor us and it will irritate people that he favors us People will be upset that you receive resources, time, gifts, blessings from God, and that you praise God for them. That's not your problem. It's not my problem. God's not worried about it. Why would we worry about it? 
But God commands us then, out of being favored by him, to go out and serve and even become a slave. And then you can kind of see the economy. If God will be our slave, how much more should we, see, should we be the slave of those who don't yet know him? If God came in the flesh just to serve us, how much more should we serve those who don't yet know Jesus? If we are the body of Christ, how much more should we serve as Christ serves? But you're tired, and you're busy, and it's expensive, and it will hurt your feelings, and you'll have to give up your preferences, and that list is probably going to go on until you say, I don't care what's on it. I'm going to serve like a slave and be elevated in the kingdom of God. And when you carry yourself like that, not worried anymore about what people think of you because you're down on your knee polishing their shoes, not worried anymore about what people think of you because you have some stuff but you're sharing everything you got, when you start thinking like that, you'll be carrying yourself in a way that others can actually relate to you. The third point, Jesus set a standard for greatness. Be like me. And we already know that, right? You understand Christian means little Christ. It was meant initially as a, a, a nasty slang term against the Christians in Antioch. They were just trying to be like Jesus. Oh, you little Christ, right? The way Jesus lived, he did what he saw his father doing. We live that way. Do you want to, and what, did, what is God doing? Shining the sun, bringing the rain and the crops, the testimony for all people alike, right? So we, we should live the way Jesus did, which is do what he saw his father doing. If you want to follow a servant, you've got to be a servant. You can say, I'm a follower of Jesus, and you can say it all, all day long. You can stay up 24 hours straight and say it. You can stay up until you can't stay awake anymore and say, I'm a follower of Jesus. But if you're not serving, you're a liar. Because Jesus is the king of all servants. He is the slave of all servants. He is the master of the universe and chose to die on the cross as propitiation for sins, to pay for sins. He chose to do what we could not do for ourselves. He is the ultimate slave. And you cannot join his side without becoming a servant. If you want to follow a servant, you must be a servant. If you want to stand with a servant, you must be serving. There have been a couple of times where we've had at New Heights and other places that I've been where there have been potluck stuff like that. And it was getting toward the end, and people were starting to clean up and whatever. And I wanted to talk with somebody. I wanted to have a, a conversation with them. I felt Lord leading me to do that, whatever. And they're over there wiping down a table or washing dishes or whatever. And so I go and join them at that task. And we work on it together while I talk to them. Or they want to talk to me, and they're like, I, I need to talk to you, but i got to go take these tables down. I'm like, okay, let's go take the tables down together. If you want to have fellowship with a servant, you must serve. Because that's where they'll be. God will be here. Here is where God will be. God God will be eternally trying to win people to himself until there is no more time. And if you are not trying to win people to God, you are not having fellowship with him because that's all he's doing. He's doing it in a myriad of ways, more than we can explain and understand. But if you are not doing that, you are not in fellowship with God because that's what he's doing. If you are not serving people, then you are missing the point of the kingdom of God, which frees you up to do so. Get in the game or get out of the way. That's what it comes down to. Jesus is serving people to heaven. All the way to heaven. And he wants us doing the same. Notice also that the attitude of a servant is a servant's attitude. If you go and you serve... 
But the way you serve irritates the people that you're serving, or the way you serve makes it more difficult for people to come alongside of you, or the way you serve is a little bit caustic so that you're back and forth, and if somebody come and try to join in, they would feel uncomfortable. You need to understand, that's not the servant attitude of Jesus. Now, I understand Jesus taught some very difficult things, and it chased some people away, but they are very difficult realities that people just did not want to accept. And you can hang your hat on those. You can teach things that are challenging to people, right? The only way to heaven is through Jesus. Well, I don't believe the only way to heaven is through Jesus. is. Well, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Somebody had to pay for sins. Who in your religion, who in your faith, who in your experience did that? Well, we have this person, we have that person. And did they come back to life on the third day? Did they send the Holy Spirit so the Christians could know in their hearts that they were saved? Uh, well, you may have to teach some caustic things that bother people. But that's not huffing because you're busy. Huh, how am I going to get everything done? That's not slamming stuff around or breaking something because you're mad because you really would rather be doing X, but now you're stuck serving people. That is not serving Jesus was dying on the cross, which traditionally included the person on the cross cussing up a storm and spewing everybody's nasty secrets, which is why people came out to watch the crucifixion. And while Jesus was dying on the cross and praying, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do, there was a Roman soldier there who didn't have a squat chance of knowing who Jesus really was. He didn't follow him. He wasn't a disciple. He hadn't heard Jesus teach. He wasn't at the feeding of the 5,000. He wasn't at the resurrection of Lazarus. He wasn't there when Jesus picked up the paralytic man or healed the blind man. He didn't have a squat chance of knowing who Jesus was. But while Jesus was on the cross, dying, praying for the people who would crucify him, he said, you know what? This man must have been a son of God. Because a servant has a servant's attitude. In the worst of it times, when it's going as bad as it could possibly go, when everything's blowing up, falling apart, not turning out the way we wanted, the servant goes, but I'm serving. I'm a slave. What did I expect? There's still too many people who don't know Jesus. That's what really concerns me. Yeah, I'm suffering here. I might even die from this. This might kill me. I remember one day, it was probably about a year and a half ago, I was sitting at my desk and I had... I was putting in really long hours, and I put in, that week in particular, I was putting really long hours and trying to fathom a certain passage of Scripture that I had to preach on on Sunday, and I knew God had told me that was the one, and I was just trying to pick it apart, figure out what the heck is going on. God, this is so hard. Why don't you just tell me like you a lot of times do? Just say, oh, it just means this, and you're all good. Well, God, just do that. And I'm like, oh. And then I had two or three phone calls from people who had problems, and I prayed with a couple people over the phone, and somebody needed courage, and their marriage was struggling. All, all this is happening in the six hours. I'm trying, beating myself up, trying to understand this text. And I said, Lord, this pastoring thing, it's going to kill me. And God said, would you rather die doing something else? And I was like, no. I mean, no. And so then I, since then I prayed, you know, if someone's going to kill me, at least let it be in a be, being pastor. Just let me, let, it, let me die doing the thing that is who I am. You know, the, God, the thing that God made me. What do you want to die doing? For crying out loud, when it gets rough and you're about to die serving, you should go, okay, hopefully this is it. If I die here and now, I'm going right straight to heaven. So maybe, you know, and then you push a little harder and do a little more and work a little harder and risk it. And if you die, God forbid, you go straight to heaven. But hopefully you don't. And you didn't in the past. You probably won't, even though you might think you will. Like I was watching a little show with Ariana called Investigators and this little kid, Ezra's his name, and, he, and they weren't going to be allowed to have pizza on Friday. And he's like, I think I will almost certainly definitely die. If I can't have pizza on Friday, I, I almost certainly definitely die. I mean, that's not going to do that. Service doesn't kill you. Being a slave gets close. 
It really has to do with the people that you're serving and what they choose to do. And you're putting yourself at their whims and you're taking a risk and you may die from it. But you don't need the captions. You don't need the restrictions. You don't need the rules. You just need to follow the servant. In order to do that, you have to be a servant. Your attitude must be that of a servant. Serve God and serve others. And for the win, elevated. Not really elevated, but elevated. Not elevated in status, not getting a a title, not being better than somebody else because God favors those whom he loves. So if two Christians live their whole life and one works his butt off as a servant and one doesn't, they're both going to heaven. I get that. But according to what Jesus said, they will not have the same position in the kingdom of God. And that brings us to our conclusion. Real quick on the points. First of all, preferential treatment is real. It exists literally by everyone at all times, never has stopped. But God is asking us to do something more, to go beyond that, and to love even those that we feel like we don't prefer. And love is not an emotion, it is actions that you go and serve, even become a slave. Secondly, notice that how you carry yourself will affect how others relate to you. How you strain forward for the position determines everything about how you will relate to other people along the way. If you can find two men who will serve until they pass out, those two men will accomplish more than you've ever seen. Any of us. Because the truth is, I doubt any of us have ever served until we passed out. And if there are someone who's served until we passed out, praise God, because you're still here. But probably we haven't been there. And God will magnify your strength and God will, God will multiply your strength if you carry yourself correct, correctly and others will not be pushed away from you. You'll have an opportunity to serve them. Jesus set a standard, be like me. He was a servant. He was a slave. The way he lived, what he did, what he does, the attitude of a servant. And then the conclusion. So we were... Like, my job has become a lot about technology and phones and computers, and I've become recently uh, aware of a phrase, and uh, Sherry just used it yesterday like it was common verbiage for us, and I, I hadn't quite adjusted to it yet. And the phrase is having a workaround. So when you can't quite do what it is that you're trying to do on your technology, you find another way in the program or another program or something to work around the problem that you're having and get where you're trying to get to. I'm here to tell you, There is no workaround. There is no substitution. Either you go through or you don't go at all. What do I mean by that? Who's in the way? Who's in the way? You go through or you don't go at all. Who's in the way? I know there's a lot of people who think somebody else of a different social class, different financial background, different race, different uh, job, different authority level, different whatever, that they're the ones that are in the way from you being elevated, from you having a great life, from you being advanced in the kingdom of God. They are not the people that are in the way. There is no law that can keep you from being Jesus' servant. There is no law that can keep you from being a slave up to the point at which you enter heaven. No one can stand in your way. So who's in the way? I know you think that there are those that you are called to serve and they're in the way. They're making it hard on you. They're refusing. They're refusing to let you serve them the way you would like to serve them. You might think that they're in the way. 
They're in the way because they're putting up stumbling blocks. They have a cost of personality. They say things that you don't like. They take away your personal preferences, whatever. They're not in the way. They're not the ones that are in the way. No one can... Do you understand that really truthfully, to a certain point, and it pretty much goes to death, no one can stop you from serving them. You're like, oh yeah, they can kick me off their property. Yeah, they, they could. But you could find ways. You send checks. You're like, well, they could not cash my checks. Yeah, well, you could send cash. You say, well, they could, they could burn my cash. Okay? So literally, you could keep trying to serve them, and there's nothing that could stop you. And you say, well, they burned my cash. And if they burned your cash... What do you think it would be like to be able to go to your mailbox and take cash out of your mailbox and somebody was saying that they loved you and wanted to serve you so much they were sending you cash and then you're upset because they're doing that and you burn it? What, what would that experience actually be? It would be extremely humbling. There is somebody out there that loves me so much, that wants to serve me so badly, that they're sending me a $100 bill in my mailbox and even though I've kicked them off my property, I've told them to leave me the heck alone, I boosted them off my social media, everything else, and yet I still get that $100 bill in my mailbox every week, and I'm still mad at them, and I'm still burning it every week. But the bottom line is, at that point, you have served them. They, they know you see them. Someone sees them. They're getting a letter in the mailbox every week. Someone cares about them. Someone is giving to them. There's no, no person can stop you from serving them. What they can do is they can stop you from serving them the way you want to serve them. They can person can stop you from serving. You say, well, let me tie your shoe. No, no, no. Don't touch my shoe. I like to wear it untied. No. They can say, uh, let me come mow your lawn. No. What am I, cripple? I don't, I don't need you to mow my lawn. I'll take care of it. Or, they could, or you could say, I just want to encourage you today, and I, I bought you candy bar. They could p- take it out of your hand and go throw it in the garbage. So they, what they're really doing is stopping you from serving them the way you want to serve them. Let's go back to Jesus for a minute. The people that crucified him, while they were stopping him from serving them the way he might have wanted to serve them, they were actually ensuring that he was serving them the way he wanted to serve them. You see? By not wanting Jesus to serve them, by not accepting a suffering servant, by not accepting a humble comer from a low basis family, who could preach in authority and do miracles, by not accepting Jesus, that brought them to the point of crucifying him, which ensured that all sins of mankind were paid for. You see the economy of the kingdom? Serve people beyond the limits of the way you want to serve them, and when you suffer for it, God rewards it by bringing about his perfect plan. Jesus said it this way, So then, you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? See, they did a lot of service, didn't they? They did it the way they wanted to do it. They used their spiritual gifts that God had given them to do the service the way they wanted to do it. They prophesied, they healed, they did some pretty fantastic things. Did we not do all those things, they asked? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. In other words, you only served me the way you wanted to serve me. You did what you wanted to do, and I gave you the gifts. They're my gifts in the first place. I gave you the gifts to use to do that, and then 
You used them. Great. But in the meantime, you didn't live for me. You didn't love. You didn't serve. You didn't follow me. I've been busy serving people, and instead of following me and serving people the way I am, or instead of having a servant's attitude, or instead of loving people that you don't prefer, instead of doing those things, you just prophesied and let people come if they wanted to. Or you just preached, you just cast demons out of people and healed them. That's all great and dandy, but it wasn't what I was asking for. There are works preferred and flashy. There are things that people want to do. People like titles. People like to be seen. People like to serve the way they want to serve. The way they're wired, the way they think, the way they act, the way they were taught by their parents, whatever. But Jesus is a servant who was present at the creation of the world and submitted to death on a cross. He divorced himself from everything that he was to be what he really needed to be. There are works that are preferred and flashy. They're even given place to by men but following Jesus is the key. Doing the will of the Father makes the service worthwhile. Faith without works is dead. Works without purpose also dead. And if the works are dead, the faith is dead. Because faith without works is dead. If you have faith and have no works, your faith is dead. If you have faith and have works, but your works are dead, then your faith is dead too. Jesus came to serve and to save. Jesus died. He didn't live the life he preferred. He didn't live to be an old man. He didn't live to have a bunch of kids. He didn't live to get a great job. Days he went without eating, once over a month. He was tempted as every man is tempted, but chose not to sin because he saw what his father was doing. And now he's asking us, if you want to be elevated in the kingdom of God, now to, to be saved is to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and confess with your mouth that He is Lord and God raised Him from the dead. Now if you want to be elevated in the kingdom, if you want to walk in His favor, you serve. Serve till you bleed. That's what He did. You don't have time to be concerned about what other people are doing. You can teach the Word but your opinions don't really matter, just what it says. You don't have time to be concerned that somebody else is not a servant because you should be too busy serving. This concludes our message for the day. I pray with you, and as I pray, I'll give you a brief opportunity to respond. We will not have a closing hymn. I know we're already kind of long, had a good inspiration a long time. God really spoken through a couple of things that people said in the video that we saw. That's kind of cool. As we pray, I want you to search your heart. Really, you're asking yourself, am I a servant? Am I, father? am I with the King's servant? Am I walking with Jesus and serving? And is my attitude that of a servant so that I give up even my preferences and serve? And then ask yourself, do you want to be elevated with the King of God? Because you should want that. We all should want that. Are you being elevated in the kingdom of God? We know we're favored. You're here. You've heard the gospel. You know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, and you can be saved that way. Most of you are made professional faith at one time or another. And if it's for real and you believe it, then you know you're in the kingdom. If you want to be elevated, then the word says be a servant. You may have to put something really costly on the line. 
ask you to talk to God about that as I pray. Father in heaven, it's very humbling. We pray, we talk about, we even try to live out most of the time. Our understanding of how awesome you are, the great sacrifice that you made, even experienced. because we're so far from it sometimes we think that if we were standing at the foot of the cross we wouldn't have been jeering we would have been crying if we were standing in the crowd instead of crying out crucify him crucify him we would have been irate protesting and resisting I've always wondered were there people in the crowd who cried crucify him crucify him who were people that he had healed it's probably so, just speaking by pure math, there were almost certainly people who were previously not walk, who walked into that courtyard in the crowd and cried, crucify him, crucify him. People who could not previously see who were there and cried, crucify him. We see that Jesus was a servant and that he served us. We realize that means that we are supposed to serve walking with him, following him, that we should be a servant like he is. Yeah, we are still in the flesh. We still have the desires that come along with being in the flesh. We think about giving up the greatest things we have in life. Twice now, as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about how you might have a, a Christian family release their young person at 18, 19, 20 years old to go and serve a mission field thousands and thousands of miles away. And the truth is, I struggled with mine going away to college. It, it could be like that. And if one of us, just one of us died, anybody that's in this room died serving you, the rest of us all just crumble, mourning and loss, fall apart. Is that why we're cowardly? don't want to push limits, don't want to go so far, don't want to really suffer for what we believe in. Lord, we're so grateful that you let us build a life around earth. I'm thinking of Daniel when he was away, and Daniel was, he was so reluctant. He's like, I'm not going to have kids. I'm not going to serve. I'm not going to bless the, the city that I'm a foreign captive in, even though he did have some freedom. I'm not going to do that. I don't want to do that. I want to participate. And God just told him, go ahead. I'm going to be here for a bit. Go ahead and build a family. Go ahead and bless the city in which you're in. Work with the people around you. Lord, if that's the standard we can carry forward to this moment in time, then we see how we can be great at the things that we can be great at and use those things to serve you. Whatever it is that we're good at, whatever it is we can do, we've got to find a way to do that in service to literally everyone and even those who we can clearly see they don't deserve it. And we don't preserve, we don't prefer them, we don't like to be around them, they bother us, whatever, and we should be serving them. I guess it means we have to go out of our way probably sometimes, but Lord, I hear your words saying we've got to go out of our way, we've got to go out of our way. I'm asking you for myself and for anybody else who would join me in this prayer today that we would find ways to serve. That you would help us. 
I, I think it's a little arrogant when the disciples said to Jesus that they would die with him if necessary. Because every time I think about that, that I would die with Jesus if necessary, I think about how afraid I would be, how hard that would be to stand firm. God, we just want to be with you. We just want to serve. We want to do what we see you doing. I'm asking you, Lord, to indwell us with your Holy Spirit and call forth you. Show us as we walk around the ways that we can serve others, even sacrificing, even giving up our rights. I'm not talking about civil rights. I know that's a big thing right now. I'm talking about personal desires. The right to fulfill those personal desires that we put ourselves on the line. If you're here today, you're praying that prayer today because you know that either you've not been serving Jesus that way, or you've not been doing so in the servant's heart, you've not been surrendered to the course that Jesus would have you to be on. And I just ask you, I'm not going to raise my hand. I'm not going to say, I'm not even going to open my eyes, but I am going to raise my hand. And if you're raising your hand, then you can know that only God will be seen. If you know that you need to serve, you've not been doing so, you're committing yourself to do, to, to, to do so today. My story, I mean, even to the point of a slave, even to the point of discomfort, even to the point of death if necessary, if you have been avoiding that, you can raise your hand with me. I'm not going to see it today. I'm just keeping my eyes shut. I'm just asking you, Father, to build up in power, to elevate in the kingdom of God, to raise us up from the foundation which we know is Christ, to be a firm force for good, for love, for the kingdom on the earth. Help us to overcome evil. Help us to push past our own restrictions, our wasted time and our temptations, our frustrations, our anger. Help us push past all of it and serve the way you would have us to serve. And let your kingdom advance. Serving, loving people who don't deserve it, because we all don't deserve it. Loving people who don't deserve it. Loving people that we wouldn't prefer to be with. Serving, and when they try to tell us not to serve, let us serve anyway. And if we get persecuted and even die because we're serving... You get the glory. And we pray for that to take place in your church. Not just New York Fellowship Baptist Church, but your church at large, everywhere that Christians are. I think that's what you wanted. I think that's what you were in for. You know when it says in here, you are patient with us. They all talk about the church, we're patient with Christians, all men might come to repentance. I wonder, Lord, is that what you were in for? that we would serve and love and be an example. God help us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Put your hands up and put it down now. I pray it in Jesus' name. For all of his people everywhere. In Jesus' name. Amen. This concludes our services at this time. Uh, we do have a membership meeting with a number of important motions on the agenda in about five minutes. So give me a bathroom break, give me a stretch, get out of your chair, get the sunlight out of your eyes. Whatever you got to do. You need a quick snack. Whatever you got to do. About five minutes.